We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Bills make me wanna. Well, the lasting image, Kay, that we got of Tyrod Taylor was being carted off, as you mentioned, with a towel over his face, and usually that indicates a major injury for a player. We've gotten so used to seeing that scene over the years. My understanding is that is not the case for Tyrod Taylor. He's told some people close to him that he does not think this is a major knee injury, even telling one person, I'll be fine. So his status is not yet definitive for the Buffalo Bills. If he can't go this week, it's going to be Nathan Peterman who came on and played late in the game for the Bills as he did when he replaced Taylor a couple weeks ago. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockfile Report Podcast. I am your host, Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. To my right is my producer, Chris Kruger, and that was Ian Rappaport from NFL Network talking about Tyrod Taylor. Ha ha! Oh! First play of the game, injured. I, I love it. Now, folks, on Saturday night, some of you didn't see our uh, video on Twitter. Chris made a bet with me. You know, last <laughs> week I bet that the Bills would win this game in in you know in, in the face of insurmountable odds, and I thought they could pull it off. And I wagered a Seagrams and more of my stomach lining. And Chris made a bet with me on Saturday night that if I chugged my Seagrams then and the Bills won, he would drink a single Seagrams for every point. That the went point differential. The- can you imagine how disappointing it is for me to sit here knowing what I know now? I mean, it's just... I, yeah, I'm, yeah you, you won't make that mistake on Christmas Eve. Well, that was deflating, Bills fans. I mean, come on. Let's, 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 let's bring it together. I know that most people had us painted as out, but come on. That, that game just seemed to suck the wind out of everybody's sails, and now there's all kinds of ancillary things going on around the team. The roster's being churned again. I mean, what else can you do? We're going to jump right into this week's Bills News Update. That's what we're going to do. The big story is the injury to quarterback Tyrod Taylor. I shouldn't even say the big story. It's one of them for the week. One of the more frustrating things to come out of the New England Patriots game, which being a fan, it's, being a fan at the stadium, 
Okay, you're just not privy to the things that the announcers are talking about. And because I'm not a guy who's glued to my phone when I'm at these games, I I don't really know. I don't see things. I don't see tweets. You know, most of the people who sit around me are away fans. So I I, I don't know. I don't talk to them about what's happening. We don't we don't have pleasant conversations. I mean. Call me a fool for not realizing that Taylor was actually hurt on the first play of the game, but then tried to fight through it for three quarters well, until he re-aggravated it and couldn't stay in the well, game. Well, you told me you weren't in, the, you weren't at your seat for the first two or three plays. No, I so missed that hit. There you go. And then I sat there and I didn't see anything. I mean, that run that he had that should have been a touchdown run that they said he stepped out of bounds, which he clearly didn't. But even then, he didn't look hobbled in any way, shape, or form. So I didn't think anything of it. You know, didn't happen until later in the game where he got he got hit again on that knee, and he had to come out. Now I left the game early. Okay, just just left early because of a combination of frustration and distaste. You know, frustration over the scoreboard and over what I was seeing on the field, and just the distaste for the Patriots fans that were sitting around me. Which note to everyone who sits in section two hundred, all of you collectively, I want you to hear me. If you know someone who sits over there, you better give them this warning. If you continue to sell your tickets and put belligerent, drunk away fans sitting around me, I'm not going to take it out on them, okay? I'm going to wait until the team is good. And then when you decide to show your face, I am going to make your life miserable. Do you understand me? Are we clear? I've had enough. I wasn't in the stadium to see Tyrod actually be carted off the field or to see Peterman come in the game. But at this point, I have to wonder, what is this coaching staff going to do? I, I mean, re- really, when you look at it, I, they've, they've got some options right now. When they benched Tyrod Taylor when he was healthy, they faced national criticism on a scale that I didn't even, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan of hot takes. I have a lot of them myself, but Jesus Christ, everyone and their mother came out of the woodwork with one. Yeah, with how, him, how dared you bench a quarterback that averages like 160 in a touch a game. How dare you? With him now facing this injury that has him listed as day-to-day. Okay, They did the MRI. Yesterday, it doesn't seem as bad as maybe initially feared when people saw him on the cart. Having said that, okay, the coaching staff now has, I guess, an excuse. An excuse to put you know, kind of a feather in their cap to say, look, we could do this. You know, Tyrod's already been benched for ineffectiveness. And even if he can practice through that bruise to his PCL, his mobility is obviously going to be limited, which seems to be one of the only things that works for him on a consistent basis. I, I mean, given that, I don't, I wouldn't be shocked to see Peterman get another start this weekend. I wouldn't. I would actually like to see Peterman this weekend because we're playing the Colts. And the Colts are trash. If that's your answer, then that's... Chris... Well, look what happened when he played a great defense. He threw five picks. <laughs> this is why you produce a podcast, and I and I am here talking to you and everybody else out there listening to it about it. I, I, I can see both sides of the argument. They give Tyrod Taylor the start, even though they know he's not 100%. They give it to him because they want to see this season through and make sure and completely vet that Tyrod Taylor isn't the guy going forward, even though myself and you and a whole slew of other people out there across the country can probably say that he doesn't pass the eye test. Or they give Peterman a shot. 
it gives the staff a chance to see what they have behind Tyrod Taylor and quarterback, which equates, in my mind, to how dire the need is to draft a first-round quarterback. Make no mistake about it, this coaching staff is at a crossroads, and I can't pretend to know what the decision is going to be on that. But what direction they go in, I, it's going to be telling as far as what Tyrod Taylor's future with this franchise is. If they decide to move away from him, I can absolutely see the writing on the wall. And even if they stick with Tyrod, I still don't know that they're doing it because they genuinely believe that he's a good enough quarterback or if they believe that, hey, we want to win as many games as we can this season. He's due uh, a huge bonus on the third day of the league year. So take that for what it's worth. No, I know, and I've seen it speculated across a lot of different, a lot of different uh, pundits, a lot of different media out there, just talking about how Tyrod may have played his last game here. I mean, I, I'd hate to see his career end that way because I don't dislike him as a person. As a quarterback, he's been one of the most maddening QBs I've ever watched play the game of football because he can make these electric plays. And at the same time, he struggles with some of the most fundamental parts of football. There's just so many things. He teases you with this potential. And I think that in the NFL, potential is the most dangerous thing because it keeps you in the game too long. You know, players with potential get too many snaps. When you draft a guy who has, quote-unquote, potential, he probably sees more playing time than he should. You know, you think about it. You draft a pass rusher that you think, quote-unquote, has potential. If he turns into nothing, that coach who drafted him probably looks back and says, hey, he got a lot more playing time than he should have. I just saw the raw talent and thought I could harness it. Tyrod, to me, is that guy. He's that guy that has these tools that if you could just make them work in concert together, he could be fantastic. He could be, he could be Russell Wilson 2.0. But the fact is, is that in three years as a starting quarterback, he is, Chris and I saw the statistic and this wasn't even before, this was before this game or the last game. He is one of the, he was 32nd in the NFL between 2015 and now. Okay. In passing yards per game. And now he's, he's fallen to like 39th over the course of the last two games, which means that somewhere out there, there are eight backup quarterbacks that have thrown for more yardage in their starts than Tyrod Taylor. I'm sorry. I get it. Everyone likes the guy. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. This must be what it's like when you get fired from a job by someone who actually likes you. You don't, you don't like the job they're doing, but you like the person. And because you see that upside, you give them too much time. And I feel like that's what Tyrod Taylor has gotten here this season. I don't know that anybody other than a rookie head coach in his first year inheriting this team would have given Tyrod as much rope as he's gotten. I really don't, I don't see that. I mean, Chris, what established coach do you think would have taken on a quarterback like Tyrod Taylor, watched him struggle the way that he has just in this season alone, and then continued to let him start? Uh, I, I don't... I can't think of anybody. I, I mean, those coaches keep their jobs because they because they win football games. Yeah, That's why that, they keep their jobs. Look, he's going to have some openings for work next year. Denver's going to need a quarterback. Cleveland, Arizona, the Jets. I mean, he's going to be able to find work and compete for a well, starting you know that job. You, you, you know but, that you just named three teams that are all drafting in the top ten of the draft who could just draft quarterbacks. There is, no, there is no given that there's an opening out there for Tyrod Taylor as a starter. 
And that's why I look at this and I say, you know what? Those teams are bad, but they could draft a first-round quarterback. And if they do, where does Tyrod start in the NFL? All those teams that I just named, because even Kansas City that we traded with them and they drafted Mahomes and he hasn't seen a lick on the field. Because they have Alex Smith. Even when Smith is sucking. Do you think Mahomes would... Smith Smith is sucking. He He threw four touchdowns this week. Ultimately, Chris, he couldn't put the ball in the end zone against the Giants. <laughs> you and I could Ult- do that together. Ultimately, what it comes down to is there aren't many vacancies across the NFL that would take Tyrod over who's currently under center. And there's not many teams that I wouldn't say I'd prefer their quarterback. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and whether or not we've actually seen the last of Tyrod Taylor. I mean, that's it's all up in the air. What's not up in the air? is the suspension coming for Rob Gronkowski. Now, again, this may be the ultimately the bigger story of the week for the Buffalo Bills. Rob Gronkowski, I mean, that hit that he put on Tredavious White, for those of you who maybe didn't see it and haven't seen the tweets, maybe you've been living under a rock, maybe you were on the moon for an afternoon and just got home, I don't know. You... Rob Gronkowski, after after having a pass that was intended for him, intercepted by Tredavious White. While White was laying on the ground, out, out of bounds, after the play was over, literally gave him the macho man Randy Savage just flying elbow to the back of the helmet. And not to mention it was the elbow that he wears that huge pad on. Or yeah. Brace. So, so using it as a weapon. So this happens. Now Tredavious White is in the concussion protocol. Okay, He's now injured. And Rob, Gr- Rob Gronkowski has been given a one-game suspension by the NFL. Now, first and foremost, I'm not going to—I don't have to come up. I don't have to sit here and try to come up with hyperbole to describe how bad it was. The fact that Bilicek, the guy who I've talked about just being one of the biggest assholes I've ever seen in my entire life, the guy who probably his own kids don't like him. He's run off the field early after losses. He's refused to punt on fourth down. Went up on teams by multiple, multiple scores. And who's coached jerk-offs like Rodney Harrison. Felt it necessary to seek out Sean McDermott after the game and apologize to him for the hit and called it bullshit. In his own words, he said that was bullshit. That, just hearing the fact that Bilicek took it upon himself to seek McDermott out and say that, Tells you how egregious the hit really was. Now that we're left with the fallout. I mean, you want to talk about what I think. I mean, that's why everyone shows up here to listen to the podcast every week, right? I'll I'll start the conversation with this. Here is Gronkowski discussing the hit itself in his post game and giving what sounds like an apology. Uh, well, uh, first off, I definitely want to apologize to number 27. I mean, I'm not in the business of that. I mean, it was a lot of frustration, and uh, I was just really frustrated at, at that moment. It just just happened uh, naturally through emotions and frustration, and uh, just want to uh, apologize to Jadavius White. Um, I don't 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 really believe in type of shots like that, but just through the frustration process, uh, game of football emotions. Uh, just, just, just what, what happened. And then in the same breath, here he is trying to make excuses for it. Uh, at the top of the run, I mean, I felt like it was it was a big hole at the top. And then the, the, the throw was definitely, 
I mean, I felt like it kind of pushed me a little bit. I mean, and, and made the play, and I just don't understand why there wasn't a flag. And just through that, and there was a couple times in the game, and they're calling me for the craziest, craziest stuff ever. And it's like crazy. I mean, like, what am I supposed to do? And then they don't call that? I mean, it was just frustration. And, and that, that's, that's what happened. Rob Gronkowski from his uh, interview over at BullshitApologies.com. <laughs> so color me shocked when it was announced that he was appealing the suspension. So you want to know what I think. First and foremost, I think that Rob Gronkowski is a guy who has the public speaking abilities of Barney Rubble. Okay? Fuck that guy. Somebody send him to a class where he can learn to use, I don't know, more than the same five words over and over and over again, which I'm sure some PR rep pumped into him right before he took the podium. I mean, I'm shocked he didn't get up there and just grunt his way through that. Jesus Christ. Talk about someone who can't speak English. Ooh. I think he's clearly a hyper-competitive guy who really, for what he matter, what he means to his team, needs to be smarter. And also... I don't know, when you think about it, not just for his team, but also for his teammates, he's got to learn how to be smarter about this type of stuff. Because I've played sports, and I've watched sports where... Oh, yeah, please, tell us about you playing catcher. (laughs) No, Chris, think about it, Chris. When you play a game of hockey, here's here's a perfect example. That's right, a competitive sport. And I don't know if you've ever played full check. Have you? No, I've only played roller. Exactly, so you've played roller. So when you play full check hockey... And someone on your team takes maybe takes liberties, takes a cheap shot at somebody else on the other team. I would say seven times out of ten, they don't retaliate against you. They find one of your other teammates and retaliate against them. And that's what happens. I mean, you saw it in the Monday Night Football game last night. Yep, I watched most of that game. Juju Smith-Schuster. Saw it. That, that, that I would say it's a football play. Correct. Georgia Loca retaliates trying to put a hit on Antonio Brown. That was a complete headshot. This is what, this is what I'm talking about. You're not the one who pays the price when you pull some cheap shit like that. And so he's got to be cognizant of that. You have to take care of your teammates. That's why sportsmanship in and of itself is important. I mean, do I feel bad that Vontez Burfick got his jaw broke? No. Not at all. He's Does been a career <laughs> scumbag. He's He tried to kill Antonio Brown once. Okay, He tried to kill Antonio Brown on a football field. The guy has played the dirtbag card his entire career. He's constantly taken the low road. And the problem with doing that, and it's one of these things that I think about Gronk in this moment, is that you gotta you got to be better than that. Why? Because if you take the low road for too long, eventually someone on some team somewhere in some game will get sick of it. And they'll meet you there. And when that happens, it's going to be ugly for you. It's going to be ugly for that player because that player is going to know why he got hurt. He's going to know it's not his fault. He's going to know it's yours. I mean, you heard the, you heard the quote from Micah Hyde and Jordan, Jordan Poyer talking about how come Christmas, they're going to remember this. They're going to remember that hit. This will I, be a nice game to sit down with your families on Christmas Eve and, <sighs> and watch Gronk get his knees taken out. I, it's No, but it's just one of those things that has no place in football. That's why sportsmanship is so important, even at the professional level. Because ultimately, if you take the low road too many times or too egregiously, someone will eventually meet you there. And even if it doesn't end poorly for you, it just perpetuates this cycle of this type of bullshit football. It does. I mean, you saw it in the Monday Night Football game. 
That being said, I don't view Gronk as a dirty player because I, I he's not known for this type of thing. He's but a, you do view him as a douchebag. Oh, I think he's a complete D-bag. I think he's an asshole. He needs to get his emotions under control. This whole, oh, it's just the emotions of football. Guess how many people play football every fucking week without turning it into a WWE match? Okay, dickhead? So that's not an excuse. And I also don't think that the punishment fits the crime. When you talk about those two, those two plays, those two suspensions coming from Monday Night Football, each one of those players got a suspension. Georgia Loca, Juju Smith-Schuster. The reason I differentiate them from what Gronk did is that they were done within the scope of the play. It was between the whistles. You're talking about Gronkowski knowing a play is over, knowing a player is down, and, and still putting a cheap shot on him. That's horse shit. Yeah, and uh, Brandon Cooks already touched him. So for a league that tries to claim that it gives a fuck about player safety, stuff like that can't happen. So how do you break that? You crucify somebody. But because they're the Patriots, and because he's Rob Gronkowski, that won't happen. So that's fine. He'll live to fight another day. Until the next time he has one of these just fucking idiot meltdowns of his. And then when someone else gets hurt, you're going to look back at this and say, hey, maybe if we had punished him more stiffly now, this wouldn't be happening. I don't know. The whole, the whole thing is egregious to me. I just, I, I can't get over it. But there's nothing I can do about it other than sit here and, and wait w- until Christmas Eve. <laughs> and wait until, no, and wait until the next play like this. Because players are watching and they're saying, okay, well, if I can get away with that, you're almost encouraging people to take liberties. If all I know is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get one game, they just knocked out our best cornerback. And he's going to get one game for that. I don't know. That's the part I can't wrap my head around. And then, in other injury news, as they do every Tuesday, the Buffalo Bills have again made... <laughs> they've, they've made news while we're sitting here trying to prep our show. The Bills announced today that wide receiver Jordan Matthews and defensive end Shaq Lawson have been placed on the IR, which will end their 2017 seasons. Now, for Matthews, he looked okay with limited touches, but really didn't make much of an offensive impact other than drawing coverage. I mean, when he went down with his knee injury, everyone was really concerned about his availability. And we told everyone, listen, calm down. It's not that bad. Well, even after coming back, he still wasn't great. And I think maybe some of it's the lingering injury. Some of it's the just, I don't know. Some of it's just the nature of his place in this offense and the way that it runs. My question would be how, because he was, we traded for him during training camp. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how long does it take a guy to get, as a receiver, to get acclimated to the playbook? And what we're trying to, I mean, I mean, I know it's Rick Dennison. I was going to say. And, yeah. and you hate him. And, and you're, if you played high school football, you can figure out Rick Dennison's playbook. Don't even get me started about that asshole because I'm not ready to start really yelling yet. All right? <laughs> I'm not. That, that, that's my only question as, as somebody who doesn't know X's and O's, and I understand that football is probably the toughest sport to, as, as far as, pick, you got to pick up your a playbook. It's not like baseball, hockey, basketball, where you just slide in and play immediately. Like football, you have to know, you have to, you have to basically uh, know a, a Bible of oh, plays. You need to learn verbiage. You need to learn where you're supposed to be, the nuances of the offense, what the focus of the offense is, well, what your audible fits are. There are a lot of nuances to learning an offense that you're right. Coming in that soon in training camp, 
he probably didn't have a whole lot of time to acclimate. But having said that, having said that, ultimately, I, I just didn't see enough of an impact that I think that this is going to mean a ton of different things for the Buffalo Bills. I just don't. Okay? And as for Lawson, high ankle sprains generally take weeks to recover from. It's a four to six week injury, which yeah. ultimately means he won't be here for the end of the season anyway. Exactly. If you're a, a, a total Buffalo sports fan, just see the uh, Jack Eichel ankle injury from last season. No, I, I mean, same I've, thing. I've seen some crazy shit flying around online about this and the, the fact that they put him on IR and how it means that the front office thinks he's a bust. Jack Lawson has not been a bust. What he's been is a very good run-setting defensive end. He sets the edge in the run game. He's powerful at the point of attack. The one thing that he doesn't do well is the thing that he didn't do well in college, which is being a quick-twitch athlete, which is what you need to be an elite pass rusher. Now, I understand why people are like, oh, he's a bust. He's not a bust. He's a guy who was drafted probably a little bit higher than he should be. That doesn't make him a bad football player, not by a long shot. I like him as a rotational D-end, but I also think that coming up in this draft, we're going to have to get deeper at that. We're going to have to get a true pass-rushing threat to go mirror Jerry Hughes. That saying that name spells the situation that you're speaking up with Shaq. Nobody knew of Jerry Hughes in Indianapolis. No, he was useless. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It was it was that it was because he was in a, a wrong. He was fit. in the wrong fit, and when he got moved to a defense that he acclimated to, he shined. And now this is Shaq Lawson's technically his well his first his year in, in a defense that fits in a defense that fits. So. Now, ultimately, what I think is this is a move, not because the front office doesn't like the guy or because they think he's a bum. They did this because they look at the numbers game at defensive end, and they say, okay, well, we can't go into every game with three defensive ends and just hope that A, no one gets hurt, and B, he comes back in three to three to four weeks, which is a sh- very short time frame for a high ankle sprain. I think that this is a move that says, hey, look, we need more bodies at this position. Shaq, go get healthy. We'll see you in the offseason, and hopefully we can keep working on things to get you more involved on the defensive front. Now, what these moves mean is that for everyone out there who was stumping for it earlier this season, when our offense was struggling, when our wide receiver depth was decimated, it looks like you're going to get your wish. Wide receiver Brandon Riley has been called up from the practice squad to the active roster. He's a cool dude. I met him at Duff's. Fantastic. Yeah, he was very polite to me. He was very polite. He was very polite. Well, that's I'm sure. I'm sure it's different on the field. Let me ask you: Were you wearing that stupid Kango hat of yours? No. Uh, yeah. See, no. that's why he was nice to you. If he knew that you were wearing this stupid flat cap that I'm looking at right now, he probably would have been like, "Who is this d bag?" And then he would have flipped you the bird when you tried to talk to him. No, it was the end of <laughs> October. Family was in town. I know and, that's what I would do. And we were at Duff's, the whole huge group of uh, family, and my cousin's daughter. Who's uh, he's like a, she's like eleven. I, I told her I was like, oh, there's Kyle Williams from the Bills, and she didn't have. I can't say she didn't have the balls because she has no balls, but she couldn't go up to Kyle Williams and go, I want a picture with you. So I had to do it, and then so I also met uh, Brandon Riley, and then Baby Hands was there too. Nick O'Leary, and so I got oh, to meet Baby awesome. Hands, and I and I didn't have the testicles to say you have the tiniest hands, you motherfucker. <laughs> Well, here's what I'll say. Brandon Riley really endeared himself to fans during the preseason. I mean, he was the best wide receiver on the field for most of the preseason. And he made some great catches and also managed to show off some run blocking chops, which 
A, you need those in an offense that we run the ball a lot, but also that's rare for an undrafted free agent rookie wide receiver to come in and know how to run block effectively. So that's going to be something that bears watching. I mean, I'm I'm really, really looking forward to him getting some reps in live game action just to see what he might offer coming into next season. Because these practice squad tenders, they're, they're, it's a one-year tender. Then if he gets signed to a futures deal, it means that he can be kind of like what happened with Reed. Reed was signed priority undrafted free agent. He was brought into the team. And then at the end of the season, they, they signed him to a futures contract. And then this preseason, he found himself the only practice, the, the only long snapper on the roster when they decided to move on from Garrison Sanborn. You look at the wide receivers that are probably going to move on after this season. I mean, Jordan Matthews, given his lack of an impact, I don't expect him to be brought back. I there, there's, I don't even know who else is here on the roster that's really worth talking about it. The wide is, receiver position is Malachi Dupree still here? That's it. No, Malachi Dupree's still here, but Brandon Riley spent the most time with the team, and I think the coaching staff really does preach this. Hey, you have to know things. You can't just show up and be talented and get thrown out there. My thing, my thing for Brandon against the Colts is going to be. If we do start Peterman, you know, how much time have they spent in practice together? Mm-hmm. Is Peterman throwing to Riley? And well, if, probably is, is that gonna if if we see Peterman on Sunday, is that a connection we might see a few times during the day? Peterman throwing it to Riley because they have that kind of chemistry. I don't know, but I'll tell you the best news I've gotten all day is the fact that Brandon Riley is being brought up. I, and then on the defensive end front, Lawson is going to be replaced by this guy. Defensive end off the practice squad named Cap Cappy. That's an actual name. Whose name makes me think more of a character off of a cereal box than an actual NFL defensive end. Yeah, like Captain Crunch. Cap Cappy Crunch. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, I can't, I can't fathom it. I can't. And so, folks, before we get into our weekly recap, I want to share something with you. Now, throughout the weeks of our podcast, you may have noticed that Chris is a negative ass. No, I just I want what's best for my team, and that's a quarterback. He has been rooting for a tank job since the start of the season. And I and from him I've been reminded every single week since we hit five and two that we've done this before. So now that we're sitting here watching our season play out, my exasperation is about through the roof. Now the way my mind works, if you were to come to me and present me with uh, some kind of an idea, a thought, a statement, a sentiment that I don't agree with. I feel compelled to study it, you know, really, really mull it over and reevaluate my stance to see if the way I feel or felt still holds water. And if maybe I should see things a little bit differently, or maybe I should soften my stance on something. In this instance, I owe Chris an apology. Rare. Chris, cheers. This is one of the only times you'll ever hear me say over the course of our friendship that I'm sorry. And I do know the next time will be your wedding. (laughs) Oh, not only is this season damn near exactly like the 2011 season from a statistical standpoint, it might actually be worse. For those of you who remember living this alongside of me, in 2011, the Ryan Fitzpatrick Buffalo Bills went 5-2. And And after blowing out the Washington Redskins in Toronto... Ryan Fitzpatrick was given a $60 million contract extension. And I think he only had one more win. 
He went on to win one more football game for the rest of the year. The team, everything that looked like a surefire playoff season collapsed, and everyone was left wondering what happened. So what I did was I took a look, I I poured over the statistics, and I made a chart. And what I found is pretty, it's pretty disgusting. When you compare 2011 to 2017, the rushing yards per game are pretty much the same. When you're talking about losses, the games we lost, how did things go so wrong that we ended up at 6-10? and 10? Rushing yards, we're rushing for about 30 more yards a game now than we did in 2011. But we're throwing in these losses for about, I'd say about 60 yards fewer. 229 minus 170 looks like 50. <laughs> That's a, it, It's 60, Chris. Learn 60? Some, learn some math. No, I don't know math. That's why 59 I'm yards per game were averaging fewer passing yards than we did in 2011 under Ryan Fitzpatrick. Whereas rushing yards allowed, now this is where things get concerning. You look at in 2011 when we were losing all those games and wondering how it was happening, we allowed 156 rushing yards per game. We're allowing 207 now. The passing yardage allowed is exactly the same at 212. And this is where things get real gross. Points four. We averaged 15 points four per game and 34 points against. So a doubled up, more than doubled up. But this season, during our losses after being five and two, we're averaging 14 and a half and allowing 39. It's even worse. It's worse. The turnover differential. Okay, that, that one we come out on the winning side of. We're only down nine instead of being down 12, but we still have multiple games left to play. We still have multiple games left to play, whereas these losses have already gone. Oh, my God. I mean, in 2011, our turnover margin, it was, 21, it was 21 turnovers to nine takeaways. Right now, we're 11 turnovers to two takeaways in our losses. We're on pace to beat that. Then you just look at the games where we allowed 250 passing yards or 150 rushing yards against our defense. In 2011, we allowed six over the course of those you know, final games. In 2017, we've allowed three of them over four games, over just four football games. How many rushing yards did we give up against the Saints? Could that actually count twice? If we gave up over 300. <laughs> and then the statistic losses by 14 points or more. Okay. Cause I look at multiple scores. How many games during that stretch in 2011 did we lose by multiple scores? It was five, five over the back course of the season. The, uh, the Dallas game was the best. The Dallas game was awful. It was a whitewash. We might as well have not, we, we could have forfeited that game and saved everybody three hours of their life. Okay. You, you, you had different ideas as how that game played out because I watched that game with my ex-wife and we looked at each other because we were getting blown out and that was the first time I had sex with her. So, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, I'll tell you this. So in 2011, losses by 14 points or more were five. We still have, what, four games, Chris? Yeah, Indianapolis, Miami, New England, Miami. We've already lost three by 14 or more. 
I, I do this kind of research. I could that see you another- people out here listening to this podcast don't have to. But if you don't, if you don't buy my my research, feel free to head over to profootballreference.com and check the math for yourself. And while you're at it, why don't you eat a fresh habanero pepper and throw a little bit of bleach in your eyes? Because the outcome will leave you feeling just the same. I would say if you guys want to see Drew's uh, table that he made, tweet at us. We'll send it to you. Ultimately, things are unraveling over here at One Bills Drive and for the Bills Mafia. You can say that in our wins against good teams like Atlanta, we overachieved. And against some of the others against teams that aren't really that impressive, you know, so some of the teams that we beat that we thought were quality wins really have to be reevaluated when you look at Denver and you look at Kansas City. I mean, look at what those football teams are. Those right there, I'm talking about three of our wins that three of our six wins that ultimately, what are they? I think Denver was undefeated when we played them, and we played Kansas City when uh, we played them, what, last week during their streak. I guess I guess my takeaway from all of this and really looking back at the statistics is that both statistically and record-wise, we as Bills fans are heading back down a very, very familiar road here. And it it sucks to be sitting in the seat right now. And that brings us to this week's recap. Patriots 23, Bills 3. Statistics of the game. Tom Brady. 21 of 30, good for 70%. 258 yards, no touchdowns, one interception, three sacks, 82.4 QBR. Tyrod Taylor, 9 of 18, good for 50%. 65 yards, zero touchdowns, one interception, three sacks, 35.6 QBR. One red zone interception. Red zone interception. Nathan Peterman, 6 of 15, 50 yards, no touchdowns, 49.3 QBR. Rob Gronkowski, 11 targets, 9 receptions, 147 yards. Boom! Rex Burkhead, 12 rushes, 78 yards, 4 targets, 3 receptions, 25 yards. Overtook Deion Lewis in the do-it-all running back category. LaShawn McCoy, 95 yards, 6.2 yards per carry. Bills wide receivers with over 22 yards receiving. Zero. And that brings us to the first thing I want to talk about. When If we're going to recap this football game, it starts with this. The offensive performance and just the scheme in general. After weeks of seeing this type of bullshit football, I've run out of adjectives. Actually, literally. For the first time in weeks, I, I didn't have a word to use when I was going to try to describe this. Luckily, Merriam-Webster's thesaurus was available online to give me a hand with it. And I've got four of them. Abominable, deplorable, repulsive, and gruesome. Those are just a few of the words that come to mind when I'm trying to figure out how to explain what the hell the Bills did on offense on Sunday. Both quarterbacks, we had two separate quarterbacks combine for 115 yards passing and no touchdowns. Uh, yeah, Tyrod, a quarterback. And don't come at us that, no, he was injured. 
he threw 65 yards over three and a half quarters. He ran for almost as many yards as he threw for. Four sacks allowed, including one and a half from our former practice squad defensive end, Eric Lee. And he also got an interception. What the actual fuck? Everyone on the offensive side of the ball was terrible, but it starts with the quarterback. It's his job to put the ball in his playmaker's hands. I don't know how much simpler I can say it. Taylor was unacceptably bad. And even more damning than the missed throws were the wide-open wide receivers that he just could not find on the field. I mean, even when the wide receivers were open, Taylor wouldn't see them or simply refused to throw it to the middle of the field. And oh. and for every Tyrod apologist out there, please, for the love of God, tell me that this was the game that you're finally willing to listen to reason and recognize that given his limited vision and questionable accuracy, accuracy Jesus, he's just not a winning NFL quarterback. Look, this is what Tyrod is. He's Drew Bledsoe, he's Ryan Fitzpatrick, he's Kelly Holcomb. He's just a stopgap until we can find a franchise guy. Okay, but I don't which we haven't but I don't ever put found. This, but I can't put this just on Tyrod. The offensive coordinator, Rick Dennison. You love this guy. Often the offense's shit day isn't solely laid on the doorstep of the players. I look at Rick Dennison and See that the performance he put on was like Jekyll and Hyde. I, I want you to hear it for your own ears, what he had to say about the job that he did. I was off the script after about two plays because we had a couple things go wrong. So I had to change some things up early and then went back to the script. So, uh, you know, that's all give and take as you go through. Uh, I tried to script the first 15 um, just to get formations and, and uh, get some information for us as we go through and we can make adjustments through the game. And, you know, things happen. You get a, a different down and distances change your script. Uh, you know, uh, whatever happens. We had to make some adjustments pretty early. So I got off. I bounced around and then ended up getting back to what I wanted to do uh, near the end. But, yeah, you know, ultimately, ultimately you're trying to figure out what they're doing, uh, what they're trying to take away, especially with uh, this group. Uh, each, each week's a little bit different. But try to get to the matchups and know it's not that difficult to be creative uh, at the end of the game, it's just uh, what position are you in the game uh, to make something happen. We didn't have that throw that, that Joe made. That wasn't even a part of it. It's just when we got to that field position, uh, that's one of the plays I wanted to go to. Rick Dennison from the Monday morning press conference, buffalobills.com. It's kind of interesting. He said that the Joe Webb throw wasn't even in the script when it seemed like the best play design they had all day, and he barely missed. Just listening to that, folks, makes me want to. I, I'm going to spare you all, but I want to flip this table. I want to flip this table, and I want to. Oh. You can't. You'd ruin the podcast. <laughs> You'd ruin the podcast. I'd lose everything. I have ruined more for less. Okay. I have ruined much bigger and more expensive and more important things for less. Rick Dennison is a fucking boob. That, that press conference infuriates me. My blood boils when I hear this because what I'm hearing is some guy just. March out the, this this list of tropes, just these coaching tropes. Ah, oh, wow, we, we we had a script, and then we went off script, and then we tried to figure out you know, what they were going to do, and then we tried to get back to the script, but the script didn't script. If you say script one more time, I'm going to put a screwdriver through my own temple. Oh, my God. 
On the first drive, I saw some great play calling. Runs out of the shotgun. I mean, we haven't seen that in a week. Passes out of the Wildcat formation. The Wildcat! And then everything fell apart. Instead of doing anything to keep the defense on their heels, no aggressive play calling, nothing created, we just ran the same vanilla, uninspired bullshit that we have for weeks. I mean, I saw plays third and five, third and six, where every wide receiver ran a five-yard route. If you don't run to the sticks, how do you expect to get a conversion? That's on the play calling. That's not on the quarterback to throw a pass to wide receivers who aren't there. It's it's incredible to me that for as bad as Tyrod's been this season, Rick Dennison has been worse. He's a boob. Oh, it's boobery in the, the purest sense of the word. Ooh, it raises a lot of serious questions when you take a look at what Rick Dennison is. First and foremost, I see the same issues in every single Buffalo Bills loss. His failure to learn and adapt to what's being thrown at him. Now, you heard him in his clip that we just played talk about needing to adapt. You know, oh, hey, well, you know, you're trying to figure out what they're doing and then you're trying to figure out what they're taking away. And blah, Okay. But if what you were doing wasn't working, then why would you continue to go back to it? Why would you continue to do the same ignorant shit play after play, series after series that you've been doing all game and throughout every single one of our losses? Every game that didn't work, you should be evaluating that tape and saying, okay, why didn't this work? Is it because the defense took it away? Or maybe we just don't have the ability to execute it. If that's the case, throw it out. Throw it out and stop wasting downs, thinking that we can just, quote-unquote, out-execute the defense. This is something I saw from the stands. Tyrod in the first half either failed to throw to or just didn't see wide receivers running open in the middle of the field who had windows where they were coming open and he just didn't see them. He missed them. Or when he did see him, you could tell he pump faked and then didn't throw it and just checked it down. Or whatever the case may be, he took another route. What I saw was that the defense eventually stopped covering the middle of the field. If I'm an offensive coordinator, I capitalize on that. I say, okay, we've lulled them into this sense of security because now they're guarding the hash marks in the boundary. I'm going to throw a, I'm going to design a couple plays that specifically target the center of the field because I know it's going to be wide open. And instead, we saw none of that. None of that. And that's on the offensive coordinator. It's, it's as simple as that. When the defense spaces itself out and takes away the things that it knows you're doing versus the things you're not doing, you have to go there. You have to zig when they zag. We don't do that. Whether it's a function of our quarterback or our play calling, but more and more, I'm starting to think it's it's on the play calling. For as bad as Tyrod Taylor is at throwing over the middle of the field, you can't just avoid it. You have to do it. Make him throw five picks if that's what it takes to get the ball over the middle of the field. Oh, it's incredibly frustrating as a fan sitting there in the stands watching it happen in real time. And just losing your mind about it, knowing that nobody around you is sober enough or intelligent enough to figure out what you're talking about or why you're angry. I hope I have enough beer if he gets fired this offseason. Oh, it's going to be a party. I mean, ultimately, every every week when we go out there with Rick Dennison, I feel like we are bringing a soup spoon to a gunfight. And that's that's just going to be what it is with him. 
So I'm sorry for raising my voice. I'm going to try to get back. I'm going to try to get this podcast back on the rails, but. I think everybody likes when you go off the rails. <laughs> I, 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 te- I tell everybody, everybody that I tell that I do a podcast, I tell them, I am, I feel so bad for you that you don't get to watch a football game with Drew Gear. Nobody it, should be subjected to it that. Is an ex- it is an experience. I'm an emotional guy, folks. I'm an emotional guy. And so what I come back to with Rick Dennison is trust. That's the last part of this. You know, first and foremost, it comes down to his issues. And now going forward, it's trust. A couple questions. I'm going to ask all four of them, and I'm going to give it a moment of silence just so you can reflect on it. First, do we trust this man to put together a winning game plan every week? Two, do we trust this man to adjust an existing game plan on the fly in the face of adversity? Three, do we trust this man to create an environment in which a young quarterback can learn and grow into a confident and capable player for this franchise? Now that you've had a second to mull that over in your heads and really kind of absorb, my answer is no. Me personally, I don't see any of these, which is what you need out of your offensive coordinator. Now, here's what I come back to. When you look at some of the teams with rookie head coaches that are really succeeding this year, I was going to go right to the Rams. The Rams. Look what Goff did last year with Jeff Fisher, mm-hmm. and look what he's doing now okay. with Sean McVay. But but what I want to point to is, I want to say, look, Sean McVay is a standout offensive mind. He's 31 years old, and he's a head coach in the NFL, and his team is going to make the playoffs for the first time in God knows how long. He's That's younger a, than you. Yeah, I know. That's an accomplishment. He's younger than you, too, dickhead. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't know X's and O's. You do. <laughs> you're probably mad that that guy gets a job in the NFL and you're making, you know, $50,000 wherever you work because we're not going to put that out there because somebody might contact them and tell you you do a podcast from work. But <laughs> get your Madden resume together and what start applying to, for uh, coaches positions. No, what it comes down to for me is this. I don't just look at what McVay is doing with the Rams. What I look at is that they're, he's doing this with the Rams, but he had the wherewithal to say, look, I'm not very good at the defensive side of the ball. I don't know much about it. So I'm going to go get somebody who has a proven track record of not just being mediocre, not just being adequate, being successful on defense. He went out and got Wade Phillips, and Wade Phillips has that defense playing pretty well. I, I would say Wade Phillips is one of the... Cream the crop when it comes to defensive coordinators. And I'm sure he's learning from Wade as it goes. So now, this is where I look at Sean McDermott. And I say, McDermott, okay, you came into this as an inexperienced defensive coordinator. No, an experienced defensive coordinator, an inexperienced head coach. So what you did was you pegged two different groups of people. You pegged Leslie Frazier and then kind of got some underlings from him. And, you know, you put together a staff. Because you knew Leslie Frazier understood the same defensive concepts that you already know. That's your thing. It's your bread and butter is defense, Sean. And he was an, he's an ex-head coach. Yeah, and he's an ex-head coach. So he may have insights that Sean doesn't have because he's done the job before. He can tell him some of the pitfalls, some of the you know things that might be coming down the road. On the other side of the ball, he went with another guy who's established but who hasn't ever really been the architect of a successful, successful offense. But he went with him because of the because of the experience in Rick Dennison. And to that, I think it's a mistake. 
I think that's one of those moves that you made because your first choice, it was widely publicized, Mike McCoy, was pegged to be our guy. And instead he went with Vance Joseph out in Denver. Now I don't blame Vance, I don't blame Mike McCoy for doing that. Well, he was already there before. Yeah, but you're also talking about a guy who's going to inherit two great wide receivers, Emmanuel Sanders and Demarius Thomas. A passer who, I'm sorry, in previous seasons, Trevor Simeon looked workable. The situation on offense for Denver looked well, don't forget, workable. You got Paxson Lynch, too. No, no. but He's it, a first-round okay, pick. So it looks like something you can work with as it comes. Well, it never materialized. I mean, you've got a stable of quality running backs. Jamal Charles... Uh, what's his Passes face? Prime Anderson, C.J. Anderson. Uh, there's another guy there too. I forgot. He, I forget his name. Uh, Devontae Booker, recent high draft pick. Ultimately, what it comes down to is that situation looked good, and you didn't get your guy, so you went with the next most experienced guy. Maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe you just really have to try to get the best guy. That's not on him though. That's on him to work with Brandon Bean and try to hire this guy and say, "Look, can you come to our franchise?" Whoever it may be, you know, there's going to be a coaching carousel again this offseason. And there's going to be a lot of offensive-minded coaches out there. There will be someone. I'd argue that we need to try to peg that guy. Because I'm, I've seen enough of Rick Dennison. I'm not even mad. I'm not going to yell. I mark my, mark my words. I will not yell about Rick Dennison for the rest of the year on this podcast because I've seen enough. I've made up my mind. I can't be angry now. That's like being a, That's like having a dog that you know bites people. And then getting mad at him because he bit somebody. No, Rick Dennison is a mediocre co- offensive coordinator. So getting mad over the fact that he's mediocre, what is it? What is it? It's wasted emotion. And I'm not going to do it anymore. Shake on it, Chris. I'm not going to yell. That's a Seagram's. That's a Seagram's, That's a Seagram's shake. Because when we finish this podcast, you're going to completely forget that you actually said that. <laughs> And you're gonna yell. Oh. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have eye in the sky. I'm gonna, I'm gonna contact Potter and get his number <laughs> and say, I need you. If, if, if during the if game, during the game, he yells about Rick Dennison, you get video of it and <laughs> and send it to me, so we can, so I can have that because you will have to drink a Seagram. That is a Seagram's bet. You will yell about Dennison at some point. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I'll give you one def- uh, one coordinator that I'm not going to yell about, and that's our defensive coordinator. Uh, Leslie Frazier, I, I, I couldn't have asked for better this week. And this is where the podcast gets a little bit positive, folks, okay? The defense. I could not have been prouder of watching this defense play for an entire half of football. It's the only reason I was still in the stadium was because this defense was playing its balls off. Some of the best football I've ever seen them play against the Patriots. Yeah, it's when, incredible. When was the last time Brady didn't throw for a touchdown? I mean, anytime you hold the Patriots to nine points through two and a half quarters of football, you deserve a friggin' medal. Hats off, Chris, cheers to Leslie Frazier, defensive coordinator, for doing everything in his power. Threw the kitchen sink at him to frustrate him and keep him out of the end zone. I mean, it did take some standout individual performances, but it might be the best I've seen from this defensive unit all year. I mean, nine points in the first three quarters, one of Brady's four interceptions this season, and three sacks along with consistent pressure. That's it. Kyle Williams got a sack. 
Didn't he? Isn't he? He's played the most games as a defensive lineman. He has in team history. In team history. Cheers to that again. Bang. Cheers. I credit a lot of the success that we had to our secondary. I mean, you've got our safeties dropping into the box to take away all the short stuff that Tom Brady loves to just four yards at a time carve up defenses. And then once he gets you to bite, he takes a, the you know he takes the deep shot. Well, our secondary just didn't allow him to do it. The safeties were consistently t- dropping down into the box to take away the short stuff. You know, his, his wide receivers, his running backs in the flats. And for our cornerbacks for not letting Brandon Cooks. The guy averages 16.7 yards per catch. We didn't let him get beyond the defense. We held him to the worst yardage total of the season at just 17 yards. And we held all wide receivers. In fact, all players besides Gronkowski to less than 35 yards receiving. That's impressive, knowing that you're playing the New England Patriots. Yeah, and, and the kind of chemistry that Brady's got with Amendola and what's he what he's developed over the course of the season with Brandon Cooks, who I think everybody thought was going to be a uh, world beater this year. Cooks didn't do shit on Sunday. No, we neutralized most of their deep threats and even their intermediate threats. Gronk was literally the only receiving threat that they had all day. And once they realized that they hammered us with it. But but the fact that our secondary was able to take that away because we schemed properly for it. That's the type of coordinating that it's going to take to win games. And this unit just, just overwhelmingly impressed me. I mean, all year, you look back at our wins. Who was it that won it, Chris? In that game against Atlanta. Would you say our secondary? You figure the, the, the Trey t- White, the touchdown by Trey White, and yeah, the there you go, Trey the, White, the big stops down this down the stretch, the interceptions by Micah Hyde. Yep, the, Trey White. Our secondary has been winning games for us all season, and this Tampa. game was a shining example of how good they can be when given the right coaching. I think that with improved linebacker play and defensive line talent, this unit could absolutely become a standout for us for years to come. I mean, it's I, I don't think it's going to happen this season, but if we can keep this group together, we keep EJ Gaines around, we bring in some pass rushing talent up front, maybe a few, maybe a new linebacker or two in the draft. I mean, those things are almost givens that we need them. This secondary could become one of the better units in the AFC very, very soon. Our safety play and our outside cornerback play is incredible. And I credit a lot of that to Leslie Frazier knowing the talents of his players and putting them in a a position to be successful. I mean, Chris, when you watch this type of football, did you expect, what did you think Tom Brady was going to do on Sunday? I thought he was going to do like uh, his standard 300 yards, three touchdowns, and a 31-13 to win. Yeah. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. Nope. Nope. And I lost a fantasy football game because of it, kept me out of the playoffs, and I don't give a shit. I'll pay my money with a smile on my face, knowing that he didn't get, that that scumbag, TB12, didn't get one over on us. And that brings me to the final, I guess the final note from Sunday. For me, there are roster shakeups coming, and if they're not coming, they need to be coming. A couple different positions. First and foremost, Ramon Humber for Matt Milano. I spent the entire offseason railing about how much I disliked Ramon Humber and the fact that I didn't like the fact that he couldn't be beat out for a starting job by any of the young linebackers that we had in camp. Because you didn't like Milano coming out of college. Because I didn't like Milano. 
But Hodges, Vallejo, no one was unseating Humber. And I think the coaching staff really liked his veteran presence. And they still do. However, at this point, Milano is simply the better, he's the better linebacker. And he has to see more snaps. I get it. Humber is a veteran. He's good in the run game. He's a solid blitzer. But his limitations in coverage consistently are exploited. I mean, you've seen them over the last few weeks put Lorenzo Alexander closer to the line of scrimmage and use him more as a pass rusher because they've realized this is what his strong point is. Not out covering O.J. Howard at tight end <laughs> versus the Tampa Bay Bucks, where he gives up two touchdowns. No, that's not in his, that's not in his deck of cards. It's not his cup of tea. So instead, what you do is you play them to your strengths. Well, they're starting to learn what their players' strengths are. If that's the case, then they should realize that Ramon Humber is nothing but an early down linebacker. I think Milano needs to be seeing a higher percentage of these snaps. I mean, he, he's just simply a more explosive athlete. He's better in coverage. He's an ascending talent. Well, we already know what Humber is. You well, really- what's, what's Humber's contract? He, this is it. This is, is it? the last right. year of it. See, so he's not going to be back. No. But but knowing that, I want to see more of Milano. Why? So then knowing that, why are you playing Humber more than Milano? When Milano looks like a better better coverage linebacker, maybe not as great in run support because he is smaller, he's a little bit undersized. That is, that is kind of stupid. I would I would want to see more Milano. Thank you. I mean, you. it's your guy. You, you, spend, you drafted him. You spent draft capital on him. Put him in the goddamn game, and let's see what he can do. And then you move on to Jordan Mills. Now, for me, this comes down to either Cordy Glenn or free agency because I just don't think there's any starting right tackles that we're going to draft this year in the this year in the draft. Really, with as many picks as we have, I, I just it, this isn't a great tackle class. But it's I been, hope you change your mind after you watch some uh, film once the season ends. <laughs> it's been widely publicized that there was a trade discussed for Cordy Glenn to the Seahawks. And we talked about it last week on the show with Nate Geary. He wasn't traded because he was at the lowest point of his value. I mean, you think about it. When Cordy Glenn has been healthy, he's been a good left tackle. But now you've got Deion Dawkins. You know, the guys are from over at Bills and Beers love to argue me on this point. You guys check out their podcast, uh, www.billsandbeers.podbean.com. They're on iTunes, Google Play. (laughs) They love to get after me on Twitter and antagonize me about the fact that I I, I think that not trading Cordy Glenn for a fifth-round pick was a smart choice, considering when he's healthy, he's worth far more than that. But I can wrap my head around why they didn't. And here's one of the caveats to it. When When Nate and I were talking about Glenn, the idea was brought up about him playing right tackle. If you guys can remember back to when he was being scouted for the draft, Buddy Nix flat out said, ah, we see him as nothing but a guard. We see him as nothing but a guard. And then they drafted him in the second round and laughed. And he was like, ha I got one over on everybody. I see him being able to play either tackle spot. Ah, it's going to be great. Well, he moved on to be our left tackle. But if we have an effective left tackle who can't play right tackle, Maybe there's something. Now, Eric Turner from CoverOne.net and I have talked about this at length. There's differences in the nuances of playing left tackle to right tackle. I mean, you saw it with uh, Cyrus Quanjo. Cyrus Quanjo was terrible at right tackle. But when you put him at left tackle, he's serviceable. He was Demetrius Bell, essentially, who wasn't anything special for the Bills, but he was somebody. He's a guy who can do his job somewhat adequately. Well... It all comes down to the pivot leg and knee problems and things like that. But with Cordy Glenn, 
Cordy Glenn seems to be the type of guy that you could shift over to playing right tackle. If we could have two bookend tackles on this team, I can absolutely see why they would hang on to him. And I think that going forward after this season, I expect to see, A, no more of Jordan Mills. And I need to see either Cordy Glenn there or I need to see somebody. Because this week, Cordy Jordan Mills got abused. And he has been most of the season. Now, now regardless of what happens, I honestly believe that Glenn will still be with this team after the trade period. And, you know, after the draft and everything else. Really? You don't think he's going to be traded at the draft? He could be. But I, I, I think that with a tackle class this week, yes, he could command some significant draft capital because the tackle class isn't great. Okay, well, even even but, pull, even pull it back to. But if pull, they pull don't it? trade him, we could start two tackles and have bookends for the first time in the last ten years that I can remember. I was going to say just pull it back to to free agency. I mean, I don't know what the free agency class is for for tackles, but say there's a team that needs a, a tackle and they miss out in free agency, they wouldn't spend a little draft capital in a trade to get Cordy Glenn. They very well may. But it's going to have to be enough to pry him out of our hands because, again, a team in the NFL can never have enough good tackles. You just can't. That's the nature of football. Okay? And then Tyrod Taylor. I look at him and I think you could be replaced with literally anybody else on the planet. I mean, I've run out of words, forums, or mediums to proclaim it in. Tyrod Taylor simply isn't a good enough quarterback to get this team to where we'd like to be as fans. We are now one loss away from playoff contention being nothing but a a, a far-gone memory. And once we get there, I'm going to demand that they play Nathan Peterman. Hell, give me Joe Webb if you think that guy might be something. And you just want to see what he has. I think the time has come for everyone to agree that Taylor simply isn't the answer for Buffalo under center. That's it. I've been saying that since the dawn of time. Since the dawn of time. Since the dawn of time, he's not good, and I don't like what it is. Is he's an athlete playing quarterback? He he's a jack of a lot of different trades, but not really a master of any of them. And he can't do either one with any you know with his feet, with his arm. He can't do either one with enough consistency to actually get you to ten wins. Which in that case, if you can't do that, I don't need you here. Now, I'm not saying he's a bad guy. I'm not saying I don't like him. I'm just saying it's time for us to move on. Yeah, exactly. When you when you go back to what all the the pundits said when he got when he got benched and how he's being mistreated, he's been doing this two and a half years as our starter. Has he progressed to being any better? No. So you lose your job. Exactly. If you're shitty at finance, <laughs> you're you're gonna lose your job. If I make mistakes as a machinist, I'm gonna lose my job. That's how it works. He hasn't <laughs> progressed, so we benched him. Get over it. <laughs> And that brings us to our hero and zero of the week. We're going to start off with the zero of the week, and I think we all know where that's going, and that's offensive coordinator Rick Dennison. You folks fell on your face. You get an F minus in my book. Rick, you get an F minus in my book. You know, I was going to give you a standard F for what you put on the field, but then you gave that hacky whatever that press conference is, whatever you want to call it, and I I had to downgrade you a step farther. Rick, I hate you, and I, I can't wait to see you no longer renting an apartment in my city. And then, the hero of the week, defensive coordinator Leslie Frazier. <laughs> I'm the greatest man in the world! Woo! 
if there's any silver linings to be taken away from this week's loss, it's that we have a defensive coordinator who seems to be in tune with not only how to build a game plan, but how to look at what the offense is throwing at him and adapt with the talent that he has on hand. I mean, think about it. He, like I said, for three and a half quarters, he threw the kitchen sink at these guys. He's got an offense that has a kicker that can kick 55 yarders with with some significant regularity. So the fact that we only got three yard, three points, Jesus Christ, three points tells you how little support he had in that game. So the fact that it was that close for that long, give a credit to Leslie Frazier. I mean, the guy really held it together for us. It's the only reason that game was watchable for more than two quarters. Chris, I expected a blowout by halftime. And and Frazier's crew, he yes, there were individual efforts by, by a lot of different players. But ultimately, Frazier's the first defensive coordinator we've had in how many years that didn't let Tom Brady throw a touchdown for an entire game. When's I, the last time? I have I that I that I, I can't remember. I have no idea. I'm I can't remember. I'm surprised Leslie Leslie Frazier wasn't named the uh AFC <laughs> defensive player of the week. <laughs> Sorry if you folks find this depressing and you know, Oh, it's rough. It's rough being a Bills fan, especially the week after any Patriots game. The streak continues. But I'm like a crackhead. I need another that drug that I got in 2011. When we beat them, it was, I swear to God, you know, I hear people talk about the birth of their children. And I think that's what I felt like after that Patriots uh, lost to the Buffalo Bills at home when I was there. When I was there and saw it in the stadium. That nugget of happiness I had, I equate that to what some people have talked about their wedding day, the birth of their first child. You know, I, I think I already have it. Because to me, it's... It's the Bills beating the Patriots. So every year, like a sucker, I, try, I march out there no matter how cold, no matter what the weather's like, and I watch it. Why? Because I need a taste. I need, an, I need another hit of whatever the hell that was. It was one of the most just uplifting and rewarding experiences of my entire life, which almost sounds pathetic. But I, I lo- that game was just fandom-defining for me. So I continue to go to them, even though I know we might get our heads kicked in. Now, we know how the Patriots did. Let's take a look around the rest of the division with this week's AFC's Roundup. Now, the New York Jets. Jets 38, Chiefs 31. There's the game of the week, by my standards. This is one of the reasons I hate being at the stadium and missing games on Sunday ticket. I miss damn good football games. The Chiefs went into the Meadowlands looking to stop their losing streak. And we're up 14-0 at one point. And then the game just turned into this back-and-forth high-scoring affair that showed off a lot of flashy plays and literally came down to the wire. Andy Reid is in a real tough spot right now. I mean, every loss that mounts, the calls for Patrick Mahomes get louder. And while you can't blame Alex Smith for his team's loss, I mean, the guy threw 366 yards and four touchdowns. They just couldn't outscore their opponent. Now you've got the Chargers surging and their defense continuing to struggle. The playoffs looked imminent for the Chiefs when they went 5-0. and People were talking Super Bowl. They had them in the Super Bowl conversation. And now their postseason hopes have all... I mean, they're slipping away in front of everybody's eyes. I, I 
for as mad as I am about the way the Bills season is going, think about who's angrier, Bills fans or Chiefs fans. Chiefs fans who thought to themselves, holy shit, our team could win the Super Bowl. I can only imagine what you would be like if we started 5-0 and and then we were 6-6. Six and six. Chris, we wouldn't be doing this because I'd be in the gutter somewhere, living out of a refrigerator box, having traded away most of my belongings for Steel Reserve. For Steel Reserve and maybe a shitty poncho. All right? Oof. I mean, I mean, this losing streak is going to make the calls for the rookie quarterback even louder, which Andy Reid doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to do that to, to Alex Smith, and he certainly doesn't want to do that to Patrick Mahomes. I feel bad. I, I hate saying this. I feel bad considering how good Reid has been as a coach that his season that started out making him look like a genius is just deteriorating right in front of him. Well, we know Mahomes is going to be the guy next year because – I'm almost 100% positive that Alex Smith does not have a contract for next year. No. So he'll be he'll be finding new work. So, you know, if they keep sliding, why not go to Mahomes? Well, because you might win a game, which obviously no Bills Coming fan wants. Coming from the guy that hates Mahomes. Which well, you, you might win a game. You might win a game, which no Bills fan wants. No, no. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Guys, one of the, one of the most interesting storylines of watching the Chiefs play is the fact that our our draft status is directly tied into their fate. So yes, while I feel bad for Andy Reid, I'm applauding our front office for making that trade for their first round draft pick because the farther they fall, the better our draft stock gets. I mean, the, right now we're we're both. Chris, are we or are we not both six and six? Yep, we're uh, we're uh, drafting in the teens, which uh, I know you don't probably don't believe, but we'll be able to trade those up and get a quarterback. I I don't care what you think. We talked about it with on Twitter today with some people about the whole draft up thing. Ultimately, what it comes down to is the fact that both of these picks values are deteriorating rapidly. That's a storyline to watch going into the offseason. Whereas the Jets, the Jets have now scored 20 or more points in five of their last six games. And they're showing that even as the need to rebuild exists, they're not the worst place in the entire world. I mean, think about it. Todd Bowles was on the hot seat a few weeks ago. Four or five weeks ago, people were talking about, oh, the the Jets are going to fire their head coach. He benched their first round draft pick from two years ago in Darren Lee. And guess what? Their defense responded by pulling out plays when it mattered. I'll even, I'll even pull you one better because when I'm at work, I, one of my things I like to listen to in the afternoon, Colin Cowherd from Fox Sports Radio, he predicted preseason the Jets are going 0-16. I know. And they played way better than they, they should have. And I feel bad for people like Kyle Smith, formerly of the AFC East Bros, who's in my shoes because I want to suck. I want a quarterback. Kyle wants that same thing. so And the team is outplaying it, expectations. But you know what? That's the mark of a coach. I mean, look at The defense is young, but they've got a lot of potential. Their offense has shown signs of life, even with a terribly mediocre quarterback under center in Josh McCown. Ultimately, if they can... I don't know. If they hit the skids, because they do have the toughest strength of schedule for these last few games... They go up against Denver, New Orleans, Los Angeles, and New England in their last four games. Which uh, Los Angeles? Los Angeles, uh, I believe, Rams. No, because it has New Orleans. Is it Los, An- oh, it Los Angeles Chargers? They're going to hit those those games 
And if they can hit the skids properly, they're not only going to be in prime position to land a rookie quarterback that could transform their entire franchise. At the same time, I think Todd Bowles has done enough this season to save his job. He's shown that, hey, we had no, people had no expectations of us. And even when we got blown out week after week to start the season, I will hold people accountable. I will right the ship. Well, guess what? They're scoring points. If this is Their the, defense is coming through even when he's benching highly drafted starters. I mean, the, I'm, 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 I really do. I got to tip my hat to the New York Jets. That's a, if that's their remaining schedule, their only game that they should win is Denver. Yeah. There's no way you're getting by the Saints. The Chargers are on a, on a roll. And just fuck New England. <laughs> and then Miami. The Dolphins played the Broncos, in which is an interesting matchup because you've got a head coach who's coaching against his former defensive coordinator who fled after one year of being on his staff to go coach another team. The Dolphins won 35-9. to I mean, you're talking about the Dolphins, a team that over the last few weeks has looked like a, a rowboat with, with only one oar. They blew up all over their previous defensive coordinator's Broncos. I mean, the game opened literally opened with a safety and came completely off the rails from for Denver from there. We're looking at we're looking at a rare season from Denver. Tell me off the top of your head, when was the last time you you remember Denver probably going to be finishing five and eleven, six and ten? I don't know exactly. They're usually they're cons- okay. They're consistently good. Well, because they're de- they have a championship caliber defense. What they have is a shit offense. I mean, you're talking about listen. Miami's defense contributed a pair of safeties and a pick six. Okay, that's. 11 points in a 35 to 9 win. The defense scored at least a third of their the, the other team's points and the Broncos offense had three field goals. Well actually, a field goal and a touchdown and they missed the two-point conversion. So you mean to tell me that those things are equal? No, I think Vance Joseph is in way over his head. I think he inherited what he thought was a good situation and single-handedly ran it into the ground. Because last year, they looked like a competent football team. Did they not? They did. They did. So, I, and plus, you're working for John Elway, who so far has turned out to be a great executive in, yep. the, in the NFL. And their history, like what I just said before, their team history, I mean, when was the last time you remember them being 5-11, 6-10? No, because they're consistently good. But I'll say this. So why not? Why wouldn't you take that job if it's offered? I don't want to pat the Miami Dolphins on the back too hard here. You mean on the fin? <laughs> I don't want to pat their dorsal too hard because the f- the fact is you played the Broncos who are somehow just as shit offensively as the Buffalo Bills are, which I think plays a role in all of this. Ultimately, though, a blowout win is a blowout win. Miami is not likely to make this into a winning streak considering they play the Patriots next week. But if anything is certain at this point in the season, it's that New England is the entire division's daddy for yet another season. And I just don't see Miami ending that streak. Do you? No one. New England is going to be at the top of the division until Belichick retires and Brady retires. Or That's until that it. helicopter that they're on just flies into a mountain and just spares, wait for just, that. just spares us all. I he pulls can't. a Buddy Holly and just spares us all. Oh, so folks, 
this week's AFC playoff picture update. Uh, playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? The fact remains that I am I, I'm finished discussing this every week. <laughs> we turned into a segment when we were in the hunt because I, I was genuinely interested in it. And right now, it's just reminding me of what a failure this season is turning into, and it's really starting to bum me out. It makes me drink a little bit harder than I'm supposed to. I told you this was going to happen when we were 5-2. and two. Hey, Chris, at least I got the Alabama Crimson Tide, right? Woo! Roll Tide! I'll drink to that. What, we're in what? The, we're in the eighth position now? Is that right? We're, the Buffalo Bills have fallen to the eighth position. And the tiebreakers are mounting. It literally, I, I think our playoff chances after that loss dropped to less than 20%. I want to say it's like 13%. Yeah, it's, it's, we basically have to win out. <laughs> and that's not going to happen. <laughs> I'm sorry. People listening. It's not going to happen. Oh, we play, my God. we play New England again. That's not going to happen. But this week, we play the Indianapolis Colts. Now, I don't know a whole Future lot. Future trade partner? I don't know a whole lot. Well, no. And I said early on in this season that the, the teams to watch when it came to trading up for a quarterback were going to be the Chicago Bears and the Indianapolis Colts. Why? Because the Colts already have Andrew Luck. And the Chicago Bears just got their franchise quarterback, or at least so they think. And then also factor in San Francisco, who just traded for Garoppolo. Just traded for Garoppolo. So those those with with the 49ers out of the mix, Indy and Chicago are both in line for a top five draft pick this year. Now, we all know the Giants have struggled. I mean, they recently fired their head coach and GM. Can I just say can I just say that? Ben McAdoo looks like he should be driving a straight truck in Hoboken, New Jersey. <laughs> Based on his mustache and his haircut, he should learn. He probably knows how to drive manual straight truck in Hoboken, probably like delivering electronics. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what kind of warehouses they have in Hoboken. What I, what I know is this. I'm going to miss the kid in the stands who dressed up every single game like McAdoo. I'm going to miss him because he's not going to be able to do it with the new head coach. Clear, clearly, no Unless one else- you get a head coach that looks like he should be driving <laughs> a straight truck in Hoboken, New Jersey. What I, under, what, I, what I know is you look at who's up there, and I said it early in the season, these are going to be the teams to watch. Well, they're still that bad. I mean, the Indianapolis Colts are still up there. They're not good by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you take a look over what they've done in their last handful of games, okay? Since week six, okay, since week six, they have one win. They have one win. And in that time period on offense, okay, over the course of their losses, they've averaged just 172 yards passing per game. That's Tyrod-esque, Okay. And on the rushing side of the ball, they still have Frank Gore, and they have a rookie, Marlon Mack, who they just are criminally underutilizing. But they're, that's one of the quiet things about this team, you know, is they're averaging 102 yards. So what I want to do is I want to, I want to take a look on offense first. Who are the Indianapolis Colts? We all know that they used to be a quarterback-driven team with no offensive line and a shaky run game. I know this is, this is going to be somewhat, off topic, but do you believe 
that Indianapolis is has been showing Jacoby Brissett and his talents for possible trade at the draft? No. You think they'll keep him? No. What I think is that I think he's a perfect backup to an injury prone quarterback who you don't know might not come, who who you don't know will come back. That's what I think. So when I look at them on offense, I say the Indianapolis Colts are a team that are almost rushing for as many yards per game as they're throwing through all of their losses. The one of I mean their most recent win, their most recent win has been one of the highest passing games of their season. You know, Jacoby Brissett threw against the Houston Texans of all teams for 279 yards and they rushed for 92. The one thing that stands out to me is that since week seven, their team has turned the ball over at least once every single week. And everyone knows what the Bills' defense is when we can create turnovers. One of the things that they don't do is throw the ball well in short areas if it's not to their tight end. Jack Doyle is a weapon for that. For, for You look at what the Colts' offense is. They have T.Y. Hilton still. But he's neutralized given the fact they traded away Philip Dorsett. They don't really have much. Dante Moncrief. Is, it, is this one of those? This is, sorry to cut you off. Is this one of those areas where you use this term I learned this year, bracket coverage? Bracket coverage. On T.Y. Hilton. Look at this. Look at you learning football. Jesus Christ. Seven beers in. I know football. <laughs> so ultimately, bracket coverage on T.Y. Hilton has taken him out of most week's game plans. So they've had to try to scheme around it, but Dante Moncrief isn't a, a solid talent at wide receiver for the Colts. Jacoby Brissett's not a good enough quarterback to consistently find those kinds of receivers. You know, he's a boundary receiver who needs to be targeted deep, and Brissett just either A, doesn't have the time between the shaky offensive line, or just doesn't have the accuracy, accuracy to find him, and he knows it. So he prefers to use his feet, he runs, or he checks it down. The one beneficiary of Jacoby Brissett has been Jack Doyle. They're tight end. I'll tell you, we just got carved up by a tight end in Rob Gronkowski. Now, Jack Doyle is no Rob Gronkowski, but Jack Doyle is probably wide He's probably receiver 1B on that football team. They are going to look to beat us up the seams. Given how we handled our defense this week, and kept all the wide receivers from the Patriots blanketed, but the Patriots still found one niche to beat us in, you're talking about a team that's not nearly as multifaceted. I expect our defense to completely blanket these guys and just focus on Doyle. Take Doyle and T.Y. Hilton away, and there is no passing game for this offense. That's it. They're, they're a two-trick pony. If you can kill that, you can beat this football team. Then again, I take a look at them on the defensive side of the ball. Over their over their losses since week, I mean, you're going back week six, and they have one win in week nine. And here's the thing. When you look at who the Colts have beat, they've beaten the San Francisco 49ers, the Houston Texans, and the Cleveland Browns. Those might be three of the saddest franchises in football right now. Yeah, Cleveland, Cleveland is the factory of sadness. They literally don't have a win over a team that has a winning or tied record. When you look at their defense and what they've done and the total yards allowed, it's incredible. I mean, against Jacksonville, they allowed 518 total yards. They gave up 330 passing yards to Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles!
Bortles threw that far on them. Then you look at the rest of the numbers, and when you average them all out, since week, you know, we'll go back to week, what is it? So they got their, they got a win in week five. So since then, they have one other win. And during that time span, they're averaging 380 yards passing allowed. Well, actually, 380 total yards per game. 265 yards allowed. And then on the ground, 115 a game. If the Bills can't get at least a buck 40 in this game, okay, their defensive line isn't, it's, there's almost no talent. You wonder why they're so bad. For the Colts, it's not because Jacoby Brissett's a bad quarterback. And it's not because they don't have wide receiver talent. It's because their offensive and defensive lines suck and their linebackers are kind of throw-ins either off the waiver wire from trades, from the practice squad, cheap free agent signings. They really don't have a ton to work with there. The one thing they do have to their credit is that they have a number of takeaways on defense. I mean, right now through their last, I mean, I'm counting five different games where they had multiple, multiple turnovers. You've got to be, you've got to keep an eye out for their safeties. Their safety play is okay. I don't know how they're getting it because I don't know any of these guys' names. I'm looking at the roster right now. I don't. I don't understand it. What I do know is that this is a football team that, even though they've only got three wins, they are dangerous if you let them be. But if you don't, they're very simple to shut down. You take away T.Y. Hilton. You don't let them establish a running game. Well, they, still, away, they still have Frank, Frank Gore. Frank Gore is a <laughs> he. Let's talk about the running game for a second. Yeah, Frank Gore is – how is he still doing this? I'll tell you how. Because they drafted a center. They have a center from Alabama in Ryan Kelly. His forte is run blocking. They've been running. Uh, now, obviously, Frank Gore is not the explosive athlete he used to be at running back. But he's excelled at running between the, you know, between the tackles, mostly off center and off guard, for most of the season. He's putting himself, again, he, beat, he passed LT in the list of all-time rushing yard leaders. No one thinks of Frank Gore when you think of the greatest running backs in NFL history. But he's working his way up there. Why? Longevity. The old man still has some wheels. Yeah, and nowadays running backs have no longevity at all. Like usually Hmm. 30 30 and you're done is is what, what what you're set at nowadays. 30 and you're done. But he has to be at least, what, 75 years old? He's old. I don't know how he's still doing it for the Colts. Mm-hmm. He's crushing it. No, I mean, no, and that's just it. It's, it's that he is, he's, he's proving that age doesn't define you. And if LaShawn McCoy could take a page out of anyone's book, I'm hoping that it's Frank Gortz in the fact that age doesn't define you and that, you know, this Iron Man just, no, no serious injuries, even as he gets older. I'll say that he's the one thing that worries me about this game. I mean, I get it. We didn't, I mean, the Patriots rushing attack is what scored all their touchdowns. But it really does come down to can we corral the three playmakers? The three playmakers, T.Y. Hilton, Jack Doyle, Frank Gore. If you can take away a single tight end, a single wide receiver, and, and just shut down the running game with a bad offensive line, you can win this football game. Do I trust that the Bills can do it? 
No, I don't. I'm going to go into this game this weekend. I'm going to stand in the stadium. I'm going to drink my beers in the tailgate. That's The tailgate is why I'm going. I'm going to go into the stadium with no expectation because that way, if they beat, if they beat us, I'm not as upset. I'm not as upset as I would have been hey, before. I'll be happy. That improves our draft our draft uh draft position. Prediction. Chris, what do you think what do you think is gonna happen this week? I mean, I'm going right now to oddshark.com and I'm gonna look at the spread. Now, do you happen to know the point spread offhand? I don't. I'm gonna have to look at that on my here we go. On my telephone. Predicted score is Buffalo twenty four. The Colts eighteen. Yahoo's got no spread. I know. There's no spread in the game because there's no quarterback. Because they don't know if Tyrod Taylor's going to start. According, that's why I went to Odd Shark. According to Odd Shark, the predicted score is 24.3 to 18.4. So we'll call it 24-18. They're looking at the Bills as six-point favorites. Do you agree or disagree? How about <laughs> that we throw out our predictions... Saturday night on Periscope. By then, we'll know, is it Tyrod? Is it Peterman? Who's starting for the Bills? We'll have a, we'll have a better idea of who's drinking Seagram's. <laughs> All right. We will do it Saturday night, folks. Make sure you tune in every week, Saturday night, on Twitter, Periscope. 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We get together. We drink a bunch of beers. We talk football. Keys to victory, final injury reports, the whole nine. Now, before we get out of here, there's a couple things I want to tell you about. First and foremost, Festivus. Festivus is coming, folks. Hey, happy Festivus, everyone. December 19th, 2017, the Rockpile Report will be celebrating, as we do every year, Festivus. We've all got complaints about things. And in the words of Seinfeld's Frank Costanza, The tradition of Festivus begins... With the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. You guys are going to... I need you to tweet us, to email us, direct message us, get it, get at us on Reddit. Your bitches, moans, and complaints about the 2017 NFL season. As we'll be reading the best of them on air during our podcast on December 19th. The airing of grievances, It's. I know people think it's a negative thing. In reality... It's all about getting this negativity that you're carrying around with you off your chest and moving into the new year with a clean slate, free of lingering negativity. So make sure you tune in and participate because we all know that everyone out there in Bill's Mafia has some venting to do. Why not do it together? You can you can get a hold of us at Rockpile Report on Twitter, rockpilereport 716 at gmail.com. The Rockpile Report on Reddit. Ultimately, hashtag Bill's Grievances. Anything you send to us, we're going to peruse them all. We'll pick the best ones, and we're going to read them on the air. Chris, hey, there's one beer left in the bucket. I'm going to need you to finish that. I'm going to need you to chug that right now. I want, I'm telling you right now, you chug that because this is this is I've been I've been dying to get to this right now, Drew. I cannot believe you just downed that beer in that in that time. Open this last beer, Drew. <laughs> what number beer is that? Oh my god! Um, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? 
261. Eric Harris, your prediction of 261 beers has now died on the Oregon Trail. I think that, I think we're gonna we're gonna end up we've got we've got four weeks after tonight of of beer watch. I think we're just gonna roast anybody that put a prediction up that we will beat, and it starts with Eric Harris. Who thought we were going to drink 261 beers tonight? Eric, I'll tell you what. You're an Oregon fan. I feel bad for you. That's it. I just feel bad for you. You live in the, you live in the Northwestern United States. You have died of dysentery. <laughs> and trying to get home, you died somewhere on the Oregon Trail. I feel really bad for you, both for your selection of college football team. And also your selection of pro football team because, damn it, you're stuck here with us. Buddy, thanks for the support. We love that you listen to the podcast. And thank you for everyone else who shows up on a weekly basis. Guys, don't forget, you have until December 15th to get over to Wise Guys Pizzeria in South Buffalo on Seneca Street. $15 toy donation for Toys for Tots gets you a voucher for one free large pizza. No bullshit. J.C. Felt over there at Wise Guys Pizza, he's a South Buffalo guy. He's born and raised there, works there, loves the community. He's always trying to give back. This is his way of encouraging you to help him do that. Stop by or go to their website, wiseguysbuffalo.com. Check it out. Donate if you can. If you can't, I appreciate it. Just know that I love you all. All right? Guys, we got to go. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. And this has been the Rock Bell Report. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.